the roll and go. Where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. I am so grateful you have chosen to listen to me and to go on the travels and see the things and go to the museums that we have managed to go through for the last two seasons. I have really enjoyed doing this podcast, and I hope you stick with me. It makes me happy to know that people are enjoying what I do. On another note, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we are on Facebook at Where Am I To Go podcast. We have lots of pictures. We have places that we go that we don't do podcasts on. And we have lots of things to see and think about when you decide you're going to travel or if you're just interested in learning about different places that we go. Also, we have an email account at whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. And if anybody has any comments, ideas, thoughts, you are more than welcome to email me there, and I will do my best to answer, and we'll see where everything goes this season. I've got some neat things lined up, and I hope everybody is ready to go for a museum tour ride. Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today we are in Lincoln, New Mexico, which is home to Billy the Kid and lots of other things, as I am now finding out. We are here with Tiffany, and Tiffany's going to be our guide today through this interesting town, through a lot of interesting history, and we are excited. Uh, I've already heard some stories. I've told her to kind of keep it down so that when we get here, we can hear the stories, and this is going to be a lot of fun because I think Tiffany's going to be a lot of fun. So welcome, Tiffany, to Where Am I To Go podcast. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Well, I'm glad you're here. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd be awful boring. <laughs> so I doubt that. <laughs> anyway, what I've kind of noticed coming in here is the whole town of Lincoln is basically a museum. That's true. That's Tell true. me about it. Well, you know, the thing that makes us famous, of course, is the, the Lincoln County War and Billy the Kid, and that's the reason that Lincoln is the most visited historic site in the state of New Mexico. But Lincoln's story goes on, you know. I mean, it actually started before Billy the Kid got here, and it continues to this day. So when you see, what you see as you walk through the town is you'll see a lot of buildings that look old, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all from Billy the Kid's time, and um, some of them even predate that. So, um, but you have a, we have a special kind of architecture here that's called Lincoln Territorial, that is usually what catches people's eyes as they drive through town, you know, and they say, hmm, this, this place looks like something special. Well, it, it kind of looks old westy, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure that they preserved it that way on purpose. Yes, thank goodness. We're very fortunate that early, early on, somebody realized that this was worthy of saving because, um, as you may know, adobe, which was the primary building material for the buildings here. You know, they just used mud bricks basically to build the buildings. And that's not a material that is meant for longevity. The, the weather will take it down very quickly. So if um, we hadn't saved these buildings early in the early 1900s, this, none of this would be here. Okay. And then also you have placards, metal placards on like 
old light lamp posts or whatever the detail what all the different houses are what they were used for mm -hmm. uh it's just it's very well documented the town is is like i said it, as you walk you just think that you're in a museum the whole way yeah absolutely well this is this is a place that people become fanatics about and I you'll can see that. yeah you'll find there's people on facebook and everything that have their own Facebook pages where they go over the history in detail and people will argue and have all kinds of uh, debates about all the little details of the history. And I've always thought it would be interesting if, if Billy the Kid could actually show up one day and walk us through it. You know, he'd be like, you guys have got everything wrong, which is a point that I was making about Young Guns. Right. Young Guns, the movie, would be the first movie that, or one of the biggest movies that brings people to Lincoln. And yet, when I went back and watched it after having come to work here, I realized there's just about nothing that's right in the movie. <laughs> I think that that's across the board kind of true with, with most movies. Mm -hmm. uh, the one about Hugh Glass, I can't remember, The, the Revenant. Yeah. I read the story of Hugh Glass and watched the movie, and I'm going, boy, there's a lot of something missing here. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. And, yeah. And it, Billy the Kid, I'm sure that, that the OK Corral and, and all of those, mm -hmm. oh, uh, that's there's definitely. a lot of liberties taken in, as far as what the actual historic events say. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's good for us because it gives us plenty to talk about with visitors. You know, right. there's never a dull moment. We spend a good portion of our day straightening out everything that they think they know about Lincoln County <laughs> War and Billy the Kid from the movies because there's been 50 or 60 movies made. Wow. About the Lincoln County War and Billy the Kid, and there's almost none of them are right. <laughs> well, Billy the Kid didn't live that long either, did he? No, he didn't. You know, we don't know exactly how old he was. The legend about him is he was 21. You know, he killed 21 men in 21 years. But um, we really actually don't know. That's kind of the holy grail of history. If somebody can find out where Billy the Kid was born and what year, then that'll be something because it's one of those things that has just eluded people. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's there's a pretty well-accepted legend that he was born in the slums of New York, the Irish slums of New York City. Really? And there is a date that's attributed to his birth, but that date and place most likely came from Sheriff Pat Garrett's biography, okay. which was written by a man named Ash Upson. And Ash Upson needed a date and a place. And since nobody knew where Billy came from or how old he was, Ash Upson just used his own birthplace and his own birth date and attributed it to Billy the Kid. And that's been accepted by a lot of people as, as kind of reality. But um, in actuality, we don't know. We actually think it leans a little bit more toward Indiana is where okay. he was from originally. Well, it shouldn't be hard to find. The Kid wouldn't be a hard last name to be You'd able to look think, up. you right? I know. Very unique. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're starting our tour. Uh, we're probably going to end up taking different uh, stops on the way up the road at some of these different uh, houses that are preserved and, and kind of museum quality. Yeah. But we're starting it off in the courthouse. Uh, tell us about the courthouse and some of the events that happened here. Well, this was originally the Murphy Dolan store. So a lot of times in history and in the movies, they refer to this as the house. So I tell the school kids when they come in here that this was the super Walmart of Lincoln in okay. the 1870s. It was started construction in 1874. It was by far the biggest thing in town, and it was intended to be imposing on the community. Okay. You know, most of the other buildings were 
flat roofed adobe buildings and had people that were um, you know, native New Mexican Hispanics that had been here for a couple of decades, most of whom probably didn't even speak English. And it was Mr. Murphy's intention to make sure that people knew this was the place that was in charge. And it's, it, it, there was a lot of stuff going on in this place. The room that we're in right now was the mercantile. They had a bar over here where the stagecoach is now. The room next to us was a billiard hall. They had the post office and county clerk's office there. And upstairs, there's a Masonic Lodge. Oh, really? Yes. So a lot of things were happening in this Okay. Location. And now as we walk into the, into the lobby or into the entrance here, you, mm -hmm. you've got a place for tickets to be shown. Mm -hmm. uh, the tickets, I guess, you buy at the visitor center, which is about a quarter mile up the road. And then you can walk down the road, read all the placards, and look at the houses. You get down here to the courthouse. As you walk in, the first thing you see is a stagecoach. And you said that that didn't really have any connection here. No, it was it was given to the state as a as an artifact, and I guess they didn't have a place to put it, so it got set out in a courtyard in front of a museum in Santa Fe for several years, which is why it's much more weathered than it was when we uh, uh, acquired it. And then I guess the family that had donated it said, uh, find a place for that, or we're taking it back. So the only place they could find that was big enough was here at the at the museum at the courthouse. But they actually had to take out the door frame there okay and squeezed it in with about a quarter inch on each side to get it in here so okay now the stagecoach is like she said weathered it's it's not in primo condition but what line was it running on do you know i don't know the answer to that it was over on the western side of new mexico okay. i believe like a little bit of arizona and western side of new mexico okay yeah but this had to have had a stage route through it also yes actually the building that linda took a picture of across the street right. was um called the aragon store and that was a stage stop at one okay. time and there was also one up the road here about a couple miles outside of lincoln okay so those were a little little later on though early 1900s Okay, so that would have been after on. Billy the Kid yeah. period. Let's talk a little bit about Billy the Kid, because that's what I, I'm assuming most of your tourism here is for, is, is Billy the Kid history, Definitely. and you were saying there was a lot of misconceptions. Let's just, okay, we, we've covered his birthplace we don't know <laughs> anything about, uh, where he was born or, or time. But when did he get to Lincoln, and, and what was the story here? Well, his, he, he came out here with his mom and his stepfather, and they were in the silver mines over by Silver City, New Mexico, okay. and that was where he went to school. And so speaking of misconceptions, one of the things I usually ask the school kids when they come to Lincoln is, do you think Billy was a good guy or a bad guy? And they'll all go, bad guy, bad guy, you know, because if they've seen the movies, that's the way he's usually portrayed, is almost... Almost like sometimes visitors will walk in the door and say, I don't understand why you're immortalizing this psychopath, sociopath, serial killer, you know? Right. And the truth is, is if you dig a little deeper, you read some of the testimonials from his teachers over there in Silver City and his classmates, he, they said he was no different than any other little boy in a mining camp. He was a pretty good kid, decent student, kind of artistic, um, you know, all around decent person. But then his mother dies of tuberculosis. He gets into a little bit of trouble there and goes to his stepdad for help. And his stepdad goes, good luck, kid. You're on your own. And so you have to imagine him at the age of, you know, we're not exactly sure, but probably in his early to mid-teens, he's now no family, no home, no place to go. And he wasn't really built for manual labor, which was pretty much the only way to support yourself out here at that time, you know. So he had to figure out how to survive. And just like a lot of kids that find themselves suddenly orphaned 
Um, you know, he kind of fell in with the wrong crowd. And what he ended up doing was figuring out that stealing horses was a quick way to make a buck and feed yourself. And he, somewhere between that part of the state and this part of the state, he stole a couple of horses that were a matched pair called, they referred to them as dapple grays. Okay. But everybody that knew John Tunstall, the Englishman who had come here to Lincoln and kind of started establishing himself, knew that those horses belonged to John Tunstall. So when they see this kid with this <laughs> pair of nice horses, they're like, hey, where did you get those? And so Billy got himself caught. And they brought him here to Lincoln, because this was the county seat, and they threw him into the carcel, which was the jail at that time. Okay. So this was about a quarter mile east of the visitor center, down okay. here at the end of town, and it was basically a hole in the ground. Okay? They cut a hole in the ground, and they put like a trap door, and then the jailer really? sat in a little adobe building on top, and they would throw these guys in there for 23 hours a day, in the dark, no sanitation, wow. you know, and one hour of daylight, they'd get to come out. Billy is this little scrawny little teenage kid, and he's stuck down there in this hole with all these mean, scary, burly, drunk, probably outlaws, you know. So, I mean, if he wasn't messed up before that, he, you know, he could have come out a little bit right. traumatized after being in that hole for a little while. But um, that's how he ended up making his way to Lincoln. And um, th that was one of, when he got out of that situation, that was one of many impressive escapes. <laughs> And how did he escape from that? Well, Tunstall, John Tunstall, the Englishman, needed, he was trying to establish a ranch, and he needed guys who, and he knew he was coming into a dangerous situation here, so he needed guys to work on his ranch, and he needed guys who were good with a gun. And Billy had already acquired a reputation of being good with a gun. He practiced all the time. He was ambidextrous, so he could shoot with both hands, and he was probably about the only person in the county that wasn't just schnockered all the time. He never drank because wow. he wanted to stay sharp, you know. Right. So he, you know, John Tunstall came to talk to him there at the, at the, at the carcel and basically said, you know, I need guys to work for me. If you'll, if you'll come work for me, I'll, I'll take care of you. And he gave him a saddle and a horse and a gun. And Billy said that was the first time anybody had ever given him anything besides his mother. Wow. So that may be the moment when this really strong kinship kind of, you know, where Billy felt like he needed to defend Tunstall later on. Well, and he was possibly looking for a father figure at that point in time. Possibly. And that's another kind of thing that we, we end up kind of having to straighten out for people is this kind of father figure idea. Because, um, you know, that's the way he's always portrayed in the movies as being someone that kind of takes Billy under his wing. But John Tunstall was 24 when he died. So he, John Tunstall was 24 when he died? Yep. Wow. So it would have been more of a friendship. They're than, more uh, close in age than people realize. Wow. And as far as the friendship goes, you know, Tunstall was trying to set up. I mean, this happened in the fall of 1877 that he got him out of the jail. Okay. Tunstall's trying to set up his ranch, which was about 35 miles southeast of here. It's not okay. even close, over two major right. <laughs> valleys. And he had to go out to St. Louis to get merchandise for his store here in Lincoln. So he was traveling, moving, doing a lot of stuff during this time. And by February of 1878, he's dead. So there's only a couple of months that they could have even gotten to know each other. So aside from that, Tunstall was from what you might call a middle upper middle class right. British kind of family. I don't think he was aristocracy necessarily, but they were they were well off. And it would have been really unusual for someone like John Tunstall to mingle too much with the help 
Okay. So that whole kind of, you know, the scenes where they have them reading together and hanging out and stuff like that and young guns and everything probably didn't have a whole lot of time to get to know each other that well. In fact, John Tunstall does not ever mention Billy the Kid's name ever in any of okay. his family's pick letters home to his family in England. So Billy was basically a hired hand. Yeah. He was just someone that was there. But, you know, Tunstall may not have had that kind of loyalty toward Billy, but Billy definitely had some loyalty toward Tunstall, obviously. So. Well, that's cool. Yeah, and, and I think you see that a lot. I mean, even nowadays when uh, you have a problem like a, bil- like a business burns down mm-hmm. and the employer keeps his employees on, yeah. it seems like those employees are stuck. Yeah. You know, whether they have a great relationship with the boss or not, they're still very, very loyal mm-hmm. because the boss stood up and took care of them. Right. Yeah. And there's another possibility is uh, contributing to this is what, um, uh, Eugene Manlove Rhodes, who was an author in this area referred to as the rattlesnake code, which was kind of a code of the West at that time where, you know, if, you know, there was like no excuse small, too small to avenge someone, you know? So after Tunstall is killed and it kind of, that's basically what kept the Lincoln County war going for three years. It really should have ended when Alexander McSween, who was Tunstall's partner, was shot on his porch. That, that was like a year in. That should have ended everything. But it kept going for a couple more years after it. It was because you shot our guy, we're going to shoot your guy. You shot our guy, we're going to shoot your guy. And it was just this back and forth that just kept going until finally Billy the Kid is killed and that, that ended the war. Okay, so let's talk about the Lincoln County Wars. I don't know enough about them to, to talk intelligently here, so. <laughs> By the time I get out of here, I want to understand. I it. hope I can so, help you with so that. So let's let's talk the Lincoln County Wars. Let's let's kind of go to the beginning of it, who the main players were, and and how all of that transpired. Okay. Well, probably you could say that the beginning of it was when John Tunstall was killed. That's kind of what we consider the beginning of the Lincoln County War. So that's and February eighteenth, eighteen seventy-eight. Well, interesting. It's a very complicated story, but. Um, We basically have two factions that are fighting against each other. So the easiest way to keep these people straight is here at the Murphy Dolan store at the end of town here. You've got the Irish guys. Okay. Okay. So you've got Murphy, Dolan, Riley, and Brady down here in this group. Okay. Sounds like an Irish law firm, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And then down in the middle of town, you've got John Tunstall, the Englishman and Alexander McSween, the Scotsman. So if you can kind of keep that English-Scottish thing here, and then you've got the Irish guys down here, and you know how the Irish guys and the English guys feel about each other. We don't know if that was actually an issue or not, but it's likely that there could have been a little bit of that going on too. But that's how you can kind of keep the two sides straight. Okay. Okay. So a lot of times when people come to Lincoln, and if they've just, they know a little bit, they think that what's actually going on here was this battle between the two big mercantiles in town. So like, I'll tell the school kids, just to keep it simple, that this was Super Walmart and that was Target. Okay. <laughs> Which makes it almost seem as if they were competing for business, right? right? But in actuality, prior to this store being built, Lincoln was um, occupied, like I said, by the native New Mexican Hispanics who had been here for several decades already since right. the 1850s. And they primarily bartered. There was no real currency here at that time. So everybody just bartered with each other for what they needed. So pretty much all these buildings that you see through the town, they're very segmented and it's usually because the family lived here and then they have this room here for their store and they would just trade off with each other for what they needed. Okay. Okay? So that had been the system for a long time. Well, Murphy and Dolan and Riley had all been soldiers up at Fort Stanton 
Okay. Okay. And they had the Sutler store while I, while they were up there, but they were pulling some little shenanigans and they got themselves in trouble and got kicked off the post, ended up coming down here and building this store. Okay. Okay. So they were upright citizens to begin with. Mm, debatable. <laughs> Very debatable. Very typical of what was happening. Somebody's going to be coming in this way. Um, back at that time with like Indian agents and various other um, situations where there's just, you know, there's, there's no law out here. Okay. You know, you've got wide open spaces and then you've got basically very little law to pay attention to what's going on and that's why you could have this kind of take people out you just drag them off to a canyon and leave them out there for the coyotes and if nobody saw it it didn't happen right right it was very open and 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 you know most of these guys who were in the military and in the army that like came to fort stanton were immigrants like all of the players in this uh, battle. Um, they, they had come in from some other country, particularly Ireland, of course, where they were pretty poor. And the only options that they really had were to um, join the military if they wanted to um, not be looked down upon, I right. guess, and find jobs. And so that's how a lot of them kind of made their way out here. And then they could finally, they could make their way up through the military. So um, Murphy had been the commanding officer at the fort, which is why he had quite a bit of pull. Right. And then when he got out of the military, started the sutler store, he managed to get his hands on the government beef contract to supply oh. the fort. So there's no real money here in Lincoln County. But real money comes from the federal government. Right. Okay? So they go ahead and they've got those beef contracts to supply the fort, which is a lot of mouths to feed. But in addition to that, the purpose of Fort Stanton being established to begin with was that they were bringing in the Native American population. They were trying to subdue them. So the Mescalero Apache were the, the, the population around here that they were kind of trying to get under control. And now they've brought in all these Apache people to the fort, they haven't set up a reservation yet, and they are obligated to feed them. Okay. So having that beef contract was a pretty juicy little thing. And John Tunstall and Alexander McSween team up to try to see if they can get their hands on the government beef contract. Okay. So Alexander McSween had originally, the Scotsman, had originally been uh, worked for Murphy and Dolan, this Irish okay. group here. So he knew their whole business plan, and he also knew they were in financial trouble. So he meets up with this Englishman who looks like he's kind of well-to-do, and he says, hey, you want to get with me? I know this little system and how we can make ourselves rich there in Lincoln. And that was really, that's another thing that a lot of times people think about John Tunstall was that like he was just this innocent that came into this Lincoln County war and he was one of the victims just right out of the gate. In actuality, his goal was to get 50 cents of every dollar made in Lincoln County. That's what he wrote home to his family. Wow. So he intended to basically take those government beef contracts away from Murphy and Dolan and Riley and they decided they would just eliminate the competition. They wouldn't let that happen. So that's how Tunstall kind of lost his life. Okay. And that's what started the war. Okay. Now, since Sheriff Brady was the sheriff here, and he was kind of the lawman in charge at that time, soon after Tunstall is killed by a posse of people that was probably sent out by Sheriff Brady, then Billy the Kid and some of the other guys that had worked for John Tunstall happened to be here in Lincoln and see Sheriff Brady and his deputies walking down the street. They thought, eh, we'll take care of this. And they shot Sheriff Brady right there in the street down the way here and one of his other deputies. 
So um, that's when it starts to become this back and forth, back and forth. And then there's kind of another major event in the war that we call the five-day battle, which was in July. And during that situation, Alexander McSween, the Scotsman, um, had asked for assistance because he was under so much pressure here, feeling like he was going to be killed at any moment. So he got some people to come fight with him and brought them back to Lincoln. And meanwhile, this crowd down here has gathered up some men in the town, and they're basically everybody stationed themselves throughout this little quarter-mile-long town here. So I call it lockdown in Lincoln because basically nobody knows who's where right. throughout the town. And if you stick your toe out the door, you're going to get it shot off. So after five days of, of people not being able to move and being stuck in their homes and kids, you know, they can't get outside and you're running out of water, you're running out of food, finally someone goes to Fort Stanton to get help. And when the troops came down, they sided with the Murphy-Dolan faction, their former right. compadres, you know, former soldiers up there. And it all ends with them basically setting the McSween house on fire with Alexander McSween inside and Billy the Kid and several other regulators. And some of them made a run for it. Some of them got out. Some of them didn't. And Alexander McSween was one that got shot on his porch. And like I say, that should have ended the war right there. Right. But it kept going for another couple of years after that. So the lawmen aren't necessarily the good guys. Not and always. Billy the Kid's not necessarily the bad guy. Right. It's, it's tricky. It's, it's very perception-oriented perception because one of the things that I often ask visitors about Sheriff Brady is I say, well, what do you know about Sheriff Brady? And all anybody knows is that he took the wrong side, quote-unquote, or and that he was killed by Billy the Kid. But if you go a little deeper and kind of look into his history, he was a very honorable um, soldier. He had been involved with four of our historic sites. He'd been at Fort Selden, Fort Sumner, Fort Stanton, and Lincoln, and had a very good military record. He was a Mason. Um, he had a big family. And, um, you know, you, if you kind of look into it, he looks like he wasn't that bad of a guy. But Sheriff Brady, like... A lot of the people here in Lincoln were under the thumb of L.G. Murphy. He basically was taking everybody's land. And so here's the sheriff. He has to, he's got this family. His wife is pregnant with their ninth child when he was killed. So he's got this big family in his house that's more, in a land that's mortgaged to, to Murphy. So if he doesn't do what Murphy tells him, what's going to happen? Right. You right. know? He's so, just doing his job. I think he he probably should have technically been more neutral and objective, but right. he was just in a pickle, you know? So it's I don't know that it's necessarily that he was a bad guy or that he was corrupt. There's some things he did and said that were questionable, but I think, you know, he was under a lot of stress in that time and, and, and in that moment, so. Well, so was the Murphy clan more corrupt than what the... Uh, Tunstall group was, or were they both doing shenanigans to each other? Or? Tunstall McSween hadn't really had a chance to get their shenanigans going okay. <laughs> at that point. So, I mean, I think they intended to ultimately, you know, kind of, I mean, and even calling it shenanigans is even, you know, kind of a opinion because, it, it, you know, a lot of times people who are decent will do things that later on look like they weren't, but right. it's because in that moment, if you're working within the system and the system is just not, not that tight yet, you know, the laws are not that clear or the rules are not that written down, <laughs> you right. know, then you, you'll get away with as much as you can until somebody says, that's it. That's as far as you can go. 
And these were wide open spaces with a lot of people that were anxious to take as much as they could get as long as they could get away with it. Okay, so how did Pat Garrett tie into all this? He Okay, so Tunstall and McSween were business partners, right? Okay. And they were trying to get the government beef contracts, which is how John Chisholm, the cattle king of New Mexico, gets pulled into that group okay. because he had the cows. So that okay. would have been benef benefit to him if he was involved with Tunstall and McSween. So um, after both Tunstall and McSween are killed and all this nonsense is going on here in Lincoln and Chisholm was like, I think I'm going to just back out of this one. Thank you very much. And he kind of got out of a lot of the stuff that was going on. He was more over by Roswell. Right. So he kind of gets out of the nonsense that's going on around here. Well, after McSween is killed and Billy kind of has to figure out how to support himself again, he goes back to stealing cows and horses and taking them down to Texas and selling them. And one of the ripest places to steal cows is from John Chisholm. Okay. So Chisholm gets sick of his cattle being stolen and getting ripped off right and left. And so he basically recruited Pat Garrett to run for sheriff to straighten out the outlaws in Lincoln. And he, uh, you know, Pat Garrett's background was like he was a bar, a saloon keeper and a buffalo hunter and stuff like that. He didn't have a law background, but uh, he, he came in and took care of business. Okay, now were him and Billy friends at one point in time or acquaintances? Or probably did they work not. Together? They knew of each other. Right. You know, they're probably. Well, they both had big reputations. They had big reputations and they, their paths crossed occasionally, you know, where, you know, supposedly when Pat Garrett ultimately bumped into Billy there at Fort Sumner that night that right. he killed Billy, um, he supposedly was, you know, could recognize his voice. Okay. So they had, they had, Billy had played. Um, Saloon games. I forget what it. Pharaoh. 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 I wouldn't. Know. <laughs> in in a in a saloon where Pat Garrett had worked at one point. So they would have been aware of each other. But the legend about them being friends is pretty much from Hollywood. I think. Okay. <laughs> well, I I just heard that. Yeah. Legend, well, I mean, so. it still persists. Just a couple of years ago, a picture showed up on the New Mexico news. It had six men in it, and they were claiming that it had Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett in the same picture together. And all of us who work here and look at pictures of these guys all the time are going. Which one? Which one do they think is Pat? Which one do they think is Billy? Not even close. Okay. And one of the dead giveaways was the guy they were claiming was Billy. He had a cigar in his mouth. And like I said, he didn't drink and he also didn't smoke. So, okay. plus, and Pat Garrett was six foot four. This dude was tall. And in this picture, you can see the man in front that was supposed to be Pat Garrett sitting, and his legs were about as long as mine. So, wow. you'll see pictures of Pat Garrett sitting down and his leg from his knee to his foot, really long. That was a tall dude compared to Billy, who was about my height. Okay. So there was a little discrepancy there, but... Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. <laughs> All okay, now, what, now most of the people that Billy the Kid killed, were they involved in this Lincoln County War? Or I know that there was that he was put into prison before the Lincoln County War for a murder, wasn't he? Um, yeah, and you know most of us that study the history and everything think believe that that was pretty much self defense. Right. Yeah, he killed a guy named Wendy Cahill, who was just a big old bully there at Fort Grant over there, and um, was just picking on Billy, and Billy was just defending himself. So we, you know, the, I and said he got that, off on the, on that. 
uh, charged he, through self-defense, He correct? No, or, he escaped. He escaped. Yeah, okay. they put him in the jail, and this was one of his first, if there were any that preceded it, I don't think we know about them, but in his first escape, he convinced the jailer that he needed some exercise and let him out of his cell for a while, so he got out of his cell, and I don't know where the jailer went, but he went in the building, and J Billy shimmied up the chimney, and off he went. So, wow. Yeah. And how many other escapes did he make? Well, it, you know, it depends on who you ask. I, I usually give him credit for four big ones. Okay. That one being one of them, getting out of the carcel, you know, talking Tunstall into right. letting him out of the hole in the ground, um, getting out of the McSween house while it was on fire and people were shooting at him in every direction, and then getting out of this building while he was under handcuffs, leg irons, two guards watching him, you know, that, sh that was, should have been a pretty tough one to get out of, but. And he was in this building because? Because he was the only person indicted for anything during the Lincoln County War, and they basically pinned the murder of Sheriff Brady on him so that they could get rid of him. Okay. So what, probably what I teach this Was school, this the jail at that time? Um, sort of, kind of. Okay. Um, and not a jail like we would think of today with, with bars and right. cells and everything. Basically, this had been, um, the, the, the store, the big store right. had gone out of business, was abandoned okay. for a little while, and then the county bought the building and turned it into the county courthouse. And since they didn't have an actual jail, they just turned the bed, former bedroom of L.G. Murphy upstairs into the jail. So basically, okay. Billy was just in a room. Okay. Um, but they, like I said, handcuffs, leg irons, and all that kind of stuff. But they don't really know who shot Shipper. No, there were, Billy was just one of a group of Tunstall's men who were all firing at the same time. So wow. it's why it's kind of interesting. And one of the things that I, I you know, I, we tell the same stories over and over and over again. We have visitors ask the same questions over and over again. But every once in a while, somebody comes up with a really good one. And okay. I had a man walk into the Tunstall store one day, and he goes... So who won the Lincoln County War? And I went, hmm. Because, <laughs> you know, your first instinct would be to say nobody. Right. I mean, everybody lost their lives. They lost their fortunes. They lost their land. So much awful stuff happened to people. But if you could say anybody actually did win, you'd have to say it was Jimmy Dolan. Because that man didn't go to jail. He didn't die. He actually lived long enough to have children, which most of these guys didn't, so he was able to procreate. He ends up owning Tunstall's ranch, owning Tunstall's store, and building his house right across the street from Tunstall's store. You know, he came out kind of smelling like a rose. And after all of the stuff that he did during the Lincoln County War, he ends up becoming like a respected citizen here in Lincoln. Wow. You know, I mean, he became like a, like a, like a politician and had held offices and was considered pretty respected. He didn't live a long life. He died in his fifties cause he drank himself to death. But, uh, he, if you could say anybody came out on the right end of it, he, he managed to pull it off and he was just a little drummer boy from the army that managed to work his way up. Wow. <laughs> but he had an Irish temper boy. Woo! Little. Huh. And it's so funny because again, Young Guns, you have to be listening to hear Jimmy Dolan's name mentioned one time, like way off in the background. He doesn't get any credit for anything. All through the first Young Guns movie, it's Jack Palance as L.G. Murphy that's Billy's main nemesis, right? I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. You've never seen it? I don't watch well, movies. Well, you're probably better off. But yeah. <laughs> Steve's I mean... been having a hard time. He keeps saying, did you see the movie? No, you don't watch movies. Oh, I just, I, so you I, know, I... right? It's Jack Palance playing Murphy. And he's, I mean, at the end of the movie, Billy shoots him in the head right out here in the middle of the street of Lincoln, you know. So that's how a lot of people think that the whole thing ended. 
Murphy wasn't even here for most of the Lincoln County War. He was dying in Santa Fe. Wow. He, Jimmy Dolan was the one pulling the strings on almost everything that happened during the Lincoln County War. And he gets no credit. <laughs> he must roll over in his grave every time somebody watches Young Guns. Wow. I'll have to go watch the movie. I, I actually sleep through movies. It's actually a very so. entertaining movie, and it's what brings people to Lincoln. So how much can we complain about that? Right. <laughs> but it's definitely not so accurate on the history. So, yeah, Murphy wasn't even here for most of the war. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's continue with our tour yeah. here of the courthouse. Okay. Well, so like I was originally telling you kind of what the building was originally right. and what the rooms were originally. But like I said, Lincoln's story goes on. And so over time, once the, you know, it was no longer the store, they used it for the courthouse for quite a while. And so the room we were in before, I, I mentioned to you about my great-great-grandfather that was the sheriff here. That would have been his office. Oh, right yeah. in there. Okay. <laughs> and when was he sheriff? Um, he was sheriff from 1902 to 1907. Okay. His name was John Owen. And he had come out here from Missouri, and then um, he uh, lived up in White Oaks, which is now kind of a ghost town, and then he somehow got elected sheriff, and he ended up having to move down here to Lincoln. And um, at that time, apparently they didn't have a place for the sheriff and his family to live, so my family <laughs> lived in the jail. They had actually built a real jail by this time. In the early 1900s, they figured out the bedroom upstairs wasn't really cutting it anymore, so they actually had a jail out back, and that's where my family lived until they built the sheriff's house, oh, which wow. used to be over here now where the parking lot and the Billy the Kid pageant grounds are, and okay. they lived there in the sheriff's house. So, so I mentioned that there was kind of a little bit of a story about this um, my parents split when I was five okay. and this is my dad's side of the family and so I actually discovered this grandfather when I was here as a visitor and really? I'm walking through the Tunstall store and I see this picture hanging on the wall it said John W. Owen sheriff blah 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 and I it was almost it was like by itself it was almost like someone had donated it and they didn't know what to do with it but they saw a nail on the wall and just went oh let's put this here <laughs> it was like the only thing in the room as I recall but um, I just thought, well, the name's right. I think my family lived around here somewhere. So I went to my granny and asked her about it. And she whips out the scrapbook. And there it all was. So you might have seen his election certificate is over there. And then recently, since I work here, I've had lots of long-lost cousins that I never knew I had that stopped by. And they come in. And I mean, we literally accidentally learned that we're related to each other. And one of them was willing to let us display the saddle here that my grandfather used when he was sheriff of Lincoln. Wow. So that's why we have that on display. She said as long as I was here to keep an eye on it, she'd, she'd let it stay here and, and be on loan. So yeah. Now is Lincoln County, or is Lincoln still uh, the county, county seat? seat? There we go. No. That's the word I'm looking for. No. Interestingly, at some point, I don't know if this was just a New Mexico law or if it was a national law, but it, at some point they wanted all the county seats to be on a rail line. And the rail line oh. didn't come through here, so Lincoln lost the county seat, which turned into a big hullabaloo because they were going to move all the records from Lincoln to Carrizozo, which was now the county seat. Okay. And I guess the locals here, it was like pitchforks and torches. Really? Oh, people were not going to let those records be taken away from Lincoln, and it went to the Supreme Court. Of the United States? or yeah. We obviously lost that battle, but... <laughs> What was, what, what's the court case? Um, I don't know. You don't you know, know the name of it? Scott may be able to tell us that. Okay. Yeah. Now, I'm standing in this room. It says, Men Who Wore the Star. So this one's dedicated to 
uh, lawmen, mm -hmm. but I'm seeing approximately <laughs> 15 names here yeah. from 1881, 1884, uh, 1933. Uh, I think all the last of these one is 1979. Were killed in the line of duty, mm -hmm. and most uh, several of them I saw said that. Uh, okay, I was thinking they were Lincoln County. Uh, officers. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all Lincoln County officers. Mm -hmm. You guys have lost a lot of lawmen. Yeah, you know, it was, I mean, Scott, my, my, my friend out there, he actually found articles about my grandpa that were horrifying, um, where, you know, even in the 1900s, he'd be standing on the porch of the sheriff's house and one of the Aragon brothers comes up to have a conversation with him, and then somebody comes up that has a beef with the Aragon brother, and next thing you know, furniture flying and guns are shooting. And I mean, I see myself like fading out of the family photos, like Back to the Future, you know? It could have been all over right there. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, we've got uh, killed in the line of duty October 21st, 1874, April 1st, 1878. April, 1st, oh, two of them were killed on the same day. April 1st, 1878, July 19, 1878. So the two on April 1st, 1878 should be Sheriff Brady and um, Deputy Heinemann. Heinemann, yeah, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and I've had some of his ancestors come in. Brady's, we actually have Brady's who live here in Lincoln. Um, you know, there's a lot of descendants on the Brady family tree. So, you know, some of these, some of these gentlemen got the chance to, to continue their family line, but not all of them, like Deputy Bell here, who was killed at the top of the stairs by Billy the Kid, um, he didn't have children, so. Okay, now, he was killed by Billy the Kid during an escape. During the escape, yeah. Okay, so tell me about the escape. Okay, would you like to go upstairs and see where oh, it happened? Oh, I would love to go upstairs. All right, let's do that. So, <laughs> yeah, you said he escaped, but I didn't realize there was uh, a murder involved with he, that. Oh, you betcha. That's where, so, like, I told you when we first came in that he's, the legend about him was that he killed 21 men in 21 years. Right. Well, we actually only really give him credit for four. Four really? total. Mm -hmm. And two of them are the two deputies that he killed here. These are the, this is the escape that he's the most famous for. So, and that's why this building is considered pretty much the, the main, the most important building in Lincoln. So, okay. So, okay, so since you don't know too much about the story, I'll start you here. So Billy's being held in an upstairs room. There were two deputies that had been assigned to watch him, Deputy Robert Oliger and then Deputy James Bell. And so they were their sole purpose in being here was to keep an eye on Billy. Okay. So they've got him up in that upstairs room. But the kind of this the program that had evolved over time was that Ollinger would take the other five prisoners across the street to the Wortley Hotel for supper every night. Okay. And Billy must have been watching this and figured out the routine. So while Ollinger is gone with the other prisoners, he saw an opportunity to get out of here. So he asks Deputy Bell if he can go out to the outhouse, to the privy, and they came down the stairs and went through this door out to the outhouse. So um, one of the legends that's very commonly known that we have to kind of, or that we talk about a lot, is whether or not there was a gun hidden in the outhouse. Okay. Because that comes from one of the Young Guns movies, too, and maybe some other the reason we think that that probably was very unlikely was because Billy ends up shooting the deputy up here at the top of the stairs. So if he had a gun as soon as he came out of the outhouse, why would he wait till he got all the way back inside and all the way to the top of the stairs? Right. He would have just done it right there and gotten out of here, right? So we think that's probably Hollywood again. But anyway, Billy comes out of the outhouse. 
comes here back to the stairs. You know, he's in handcuffs and leg irons, so you can imagine he's going up the stairs here. He's got Deputy Bell behind him, probably with his gun on him. So the story that we go with, which is the closest thing we have to a first-hand account, is what Billy told J.P. Meadows. Okay. Billy said he was able to get to the top of the stairs faster than Deputy Bell and get around the corner. When Deputy Bell got to the top of the stairs, Billy just clunked him over the head with these big old heavy handcuffs, busted his head open, disoriented him. They tussled around here on the floor for a couple of minutes, and Billy was able to get his gun away from him. Okay. okay. So we're not exactly sure about the whole handcuff thing, whether he was still in the handcuffs or not. He doesn't say. That's another little legend that he had small hands and big wrists and he was able to wriggle out of the handcuffs. But also sometimes back then jailers would let you have a hand out of your cuffs for supper. Right. They were bringing him his meals here at the courthouse. So he may have been, just as a courtesy, he might have been out of one of them already. Or... He'd just come out of the outhouse, too. So unless you want the jailer taking care of your business for you, maybe he, he might have let him out say, of one. It's kind of hard to wipe two-handed, Yes, I exactly. So, I mean, there's a couple of possibilities of what might have happened. But regardless, he somehow managed to get the gun away from Deputy Bell. Okay. And he's lying on his stomach here at the top of the stairs. Deputy Bell decides to run, and Billy feels like he, he can't let him get away. He didn't want to shoot him, he later said, but he had to. So he shoots. Pow, Deputy Bell, as he's on his way down the stairs, mortally wounding him. And Deputy Bell continues down the stairs, out back, and dies behind the building. Okay. Okay. So. Um, now, we got a hole down here in the wall. Mm-hmm. What is that? That's a whole nother story. Okay, okay. Um, but I'll tell you what Pat Garrett's forensic report said, that the bullet ricocheted off the wall on the right-hand side of the staircase, passed through Deputy Bell under his right arm, exited under his left arm, and then embedded in the adobe wall on this side. Oh, really? So that is the thing, that bullet hole at the bottom of the stairs will be the thing that people remember when they've come to the Lincoln County Courthouse, even if they came here when they were four years old. Right. They won't remember anything else about Lincoln, but they'll remember that bullet hole at the bottom of the staircase. It makes an impression, but it wasn't put in until the 1940s for the tourists. Okay. <laughs> so after Billy gets done with Deputy <laughs> Bell... He shuffles down the hallway here. He had to go this way because this upstairs area, this room that we're in right now, okay. had originally been L.G. Murphy's living quarters and was divided into three rooms, three or four rooms. So okay. there were walls that no longer exist here. Okay, and we're standing in a room that's probably 30 by 30. Uh, it's got a uh, potbelly stove in it, and it looks like it's set up more or less for a courtroom right, right now. Right, the later use of the building when it was the courthouse. This was the courtroom. Okay, okay. and it's got wooden benches, uh, wooden uh, jurors' chairs, and all of that kind of stuff in mm -hmm. here. Yes. So over here in the northeast corner, you can see there's white lines painted on the floor, and that's to indicate where the room was where Billy the Kid was being held. Okay. So this was the quote-unquote jail. jail. Mm -hmm. And they had Billy in here. So he, he probably sat here for several weeks in this window watching the activity of Lincoln going on below him. You know, I mean, some people even say he was watching his own gallows be built. That's questionable whether that was being ha happening or not. But he, he had a good view of the Wortley Hotel here. Oh, yeah. So before he came this way, I've left this little part of the story out. He grabbed Deputy Ollinger's own shotgun, a Whitneyville shotgun, from the armory over there. And then he came to this window, knowing probably that Ollinger was going to come running okay. and would be aiming for the door below us because it was the fastest way to get upstairs. And he just waited for him here in the window. As soon as Ollinger came up under the window, bam! Took him out right there under the window. Wow. Yep. 
And so what happened to the other five prisoners that were, they're were just with They're just hanging out over there. He just left them. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, he just left them. So, so did they escape also? Or did I honestly they come back don't know what happened up? to them. I think it was such a spectacle what was going on. They probably were all just standing there with their mouths hanging open. And they I don't know if they hung around. We'll have to ask Scott that question too. Okay. <laughs> but you would think after this moment, right, right, that Billy would have been in a big hurry to get out of here, right? right. Yeah, he hung out for like an hour. You know, he'd killed all the law that was in town that day, so he didn't really have anything else to worry about. And he had to get his leg irons open before he could get on a horse. So he hung around. He went out here on the front porch and made some speeches to the crowd that had gathered and told them, you know, I didn't really want to shoot Deputy Bell, but he tried to run, so I had to. And, you know, he said something about, don't any of you get in my way. I don't want to shoot you either, but I will, you know. And he just kind of kept everybody at bay. Really? Until they were able to find a prospector's pick for him. And he got his leg irons open. And here's the funny part of the story. Once he finally gets done getting his leg irons open and everything, and they bring him a horse, <laughs> and it was a really skittish little horse. Okay. So he goes to get on the horse to ride out of town, and his leg irons jingled and scared the horse, and it bucked him right off. <laughs> really? They never show that in the movies. They don't show Billy the Kid landing on his tukus out in the streets of Lincoln, do so they? So they get him another horse? No, and get back he on just that climbed one? back on, and he rode out of town and promised wow. to return the horse, and I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, that he did. He let the horse come back home. So, wow. yeah, yeah. So this is this is the one that he's the most known for. But like I mentioned to you, as as the story of Lincoln continues, this building in the 1920s was used as the school, and so at that time, this room was the auditorium. Okay. This was uh, where they had school plays and concerts and all kinds of things. They used to have big dances up here, made a lot of noise and spit a lot of tobacco, and of course, you know, it was used as a courtroom and. You said it was also a Masonic Hall at one point? The Masonic Hall actually is still down here. You oh, can okay. see it all set up. The uh, current Masonic Lodge uh, for Lincoln County is in Carrizozo, and they come once a year and they do a meeting in here. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So since I'm a former Rainbow Girl, I usually get to clean it before they get here. <laughs> I don't know if you know what Rainbow Girls are. I don't are, know but what a Rainbow Girl it's is. It's a uh, Rainbow Demolay. They're, they're kind of offshoots from the Masonic organization. Okay. So it's for girls that are And this is still set teenager. up as a Masonic Hall. It this, is. Very area. small. And this room's probably 15 foot wide and 35 foot long. Mm -hmm. And has a flag and some different... This is what uh, we would call paraphernalia. It's okay. the paraphernalia of a Masonic Lodge. There you go. Yeah, they've got their lambskin aprons. Of course, you know a lot of the founding fathers were Masons. Right. So there used to be a picture of George Washington right here, but... Um, you know, that's to me, the irony in this, having been a rainbow girl and just kind of growing up in a Masonic organization, it's a, it's a Christian-based organization, at least today. I know there's lots of debate about that, but it's a Christian-based organization, and I just think... How was it that these guys, Murphy and Brady and all of these guys that were Masons and, and, and participating in this Masonic organization, were able to just kind of leave that Christianity behind and then go out into the streets and just shoot each other right, right. and left, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's an interesting contradiction. But Masonic lodges in those days were a way to make connections, business oh, yeah. kind of stuff. And so I'm sure that that's why he put it right here a in his own building. A lot of the founding, uh, founding uh, fathers and stuff mm -hmm. of most towns were, were Masons. Masons, yeah, absolutely. Yes, My great-great-grandfather was too. Uh, organization. Yep. So this was the picture I was mentioning to you of okay. the, the scaffolding back behind the courthouse here. So this is Grandpa. 
okay. far right. And so I, the funny story about this is down there where in the first room we were in, the sheriff's office that had um, his election certificate, there's also a letter in there that he wrote to his son, who was a deputy sheriff. And in the letter he's saying, hey, we're going to have a hanging. Come on down. Bring the kids. Bring a picnic. You know, it's a big event in town. It used to be big It events. did. You know, they didn't have movie theaters. So, so in the letter he says... Um, to tell Tom, who was his half-brother, to come early if he knows how to build a gallows. So, you know, in Western movies, it always seems like like they were hanging people, like, every day. Right. But it just wasn't that common. And so I guess it had been long enough since they'd had to hang anybody. They'd kind of forgotten how to do it. So the picture is nice because it shows they, they, they managed to build a pretty nice gallows there. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> but, and there's uh, about eight guys standing on the on the gallows. Mm -hmm. Your grandfather is standing in, in one corner of it. Yep. They're all... Uh, the uppity ups of I'm town. I'm sure they're sure. the important people, but uh, none the of them have ropes around their neck. No. Or anything, so. Well, nobody ended up having a rope around their neck because the guy they were supposed to hang that day got away. Really? So even after all this, <laughs> they finally have a real jail. And doggone, they still couldn't hang on to these guys. <laughs> <laughs> and they never did catch and up I, with him I again. Get, no, he was smarter than Billy. He got out of here. He, did, he was never seen again. His name was uh, Rosario Emilio. And he was the son of some Italian immigrants who had a saloon across the street here. Okay. I guess he had gotten into a relationship with one of the local Hispanic ladies who was older than he. I don't know what the story was, but he pursued her and her family between Lincoln and Roswell. And when he got them out into the wide open spaces, he coaxed her away from her parents and just <laughs> shot her in the face. Really? So back in those days, sheriff's terms were only two years. So... I, it's my theory that the reason Grandpa stayed sheriff as long as he did was because he wanted, it was like his mission to get this guy. Huh. And um, he finally did. There's a, suppose, a family legend that he traced him as far as Georgia. Really? To track him down and bring him back. I, don't, I haven't gotten documentation on that yet. But he, he got his man, brought him home, put him in the jail, and there still must have just been just enough corruption. You know, everybody's connected. Everybody knows somebody, and you leave the wrong guy in charge of the jail one night, and he just forgets to close the door when he leaves. Mm -hmm. So who knows how he got away, but he was never seen again. Wow. So, and he's the one that one of my other long-lost cousins inherited the Wanted poster for him, the original Wanted oh, poster. Oh, really? And that's what I have on my computer that I can show you later. Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah, she says that she has some things she's going to show us on her computer, <laughs> some of this history, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. But uh, this, this upstairs of the courthouse, you've got uh, some jail bars uh, on display. You've that got would have been my family's pictures. window at one time, back when they lived in the oh, jailhouse. So not, oh. That's from the 1900s jail that was built okay. later. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And then there's lots of different pictures of uh, old Lincoln. Uh, I wanted to point this one out to you in case we ended up looking at the schoolhouse because this is the first school in Lincoln. Okay. It was built in 1878. And since I'm the education girl, one of the things I do when I go talk to the school kids and stuff is I dress up like a school marm and I teach them about what it was like to be in a one-room school. And so if you look at this picture with this variety of kids, you know, most of these teachers back in those days were like 16 to 20 years old. They left their families to go find a teaching job, usually far away from home, and they were just little tiny, little petite, little teenage girls practically, you know, wow. but they had to be tough enough to deal with these dudes back here in the back row who would show up to school with their Winchesters and their six shooters and, you know, trying to push the boundaries with the teacher and see what they could get away with. But the community expected the teacher to be tough because right. they wanted their children educated. And so the teacher was expected to be able to discipline that class by whatever means necessary. And that's why school marms and school mistresses had the ferrule 
which was a stick where they could beat you on the knuckles or beat you on the head, or they could, you know, put the dunce cap on you and humiliate you, or they could make you, you know, write, I will not, da-da-da-da-da, 5,000 times on the chalkboard and send you home in the dark. I mean, they could do whatever they needed to do to make sure that you kept yourself And parents didn't sue back it's in the day? It's amazing how different things were back then. Wow. Yeah, the teacher was actually uh, respected. Huh. That's an interesting concept. <laughs> yeah, trust me, I taught middle school. I would not want to I would not want to be a teacher nowadays Very for hard. anything. Yeah, it's the the whole that whole scenario has flipped. You know, if if a kid comes home and goes, "Miss Owen was mean to me." I mean, you are. You could be facing a lawsuit. You I mean, you're in trouble with your boss. There's a lot that can go. I mean, this all, the child is always right now. So it tell us a little bit more about the one room schoolhouse since you're well, all up to date on that. Well, you know, specifically here in Lincoln, um, and this was true in a lot of, you know, rural communities in New Mexico, you, in addition to having students who were probably from age four up to 20, um, all in the same room at the same time, you're right. teaching all the grades, they're all at different ability levels, and then you might have their parents joining in because they never got a chance to be educated, so they want to get learn how to read and write too. You might have parents really? showing up. I yeah. never even thought about that yep. aspect. Yeah. And then, you know, probably the majority of them didn't speak English. This is what happened with my maternal grandfather. He taught in a one-room school up in northeastern New Mexico just before World War II, and his entire student class was spoke Spanish. And he didn't. And he didn't. <laughs> no. Wow. But he learned it. He ended up teaching Spanish in Alamogordo wow. at the high school. But, uh, yeah, he, it, it, you had language. And I, I told you there was Italian people across right. the street here. There were people from Turkey living in Lincoln. There were a lot of immigrants, a lot of different languages, a lot of different cultures squished in there together. And the teacher back in those days, um, she almost had to be like a nun, really. I mean, they, were, they could not get married or they'd have to give up teaching right. because they were married to the job. And they were not allowed to smoke or drink or curse or be seen in any place where any of those things might even occur or she could lose her wow. job. Um, and then, you know, teaching all week, all these different age kids and everything. She was, you know, supposed to be a fine, upstanding member of the community. So she was expected to attend church on Sunday and sing in the choir. And then she might have additional classes after you know, church on well, Sunday. Well, she probably had to be to school an hour and a half early in oh, order yeah. to get things warm. Have to get the stove, build the, fire. build the fire, get the stove warmed up the building. She'd have to go down to the river and get two buckets of water at least, one for hand washing, the other one was for drinking, and they all drank out of the same bucket. <laughs> yeah, she had a lot she had to do before school even started. And did they pay them well? Uh, they got, you know, depending on different periods of time, you know, they made like, between ten and twenty dollars a month, and um, you know, if they hung around for five years, they could earn a twenty-five cent raise. You know, wow, so, pretty good, huh? Well, so but that, you got to consider the the time period ver dollar versus our dollar. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what today's dollar. It was would still be. fairly low even for that time period. And were they given? Uh, Room and board. That's where I was headed it. next. They, it's different situations, you know. Um, they used to do something that was called boarding round. So okay. the teacher would stay at a different student's home on a weekly basis. So you can imagine what really? that would be like because you might have a student who had a pretty decent house and then the next week you're with a really poor family that doesn't even have glass in their windows. You know, it, it, it was probably very challenging. Um, so some teachers would just find it easier to just live in the schoolhouse. That's what my grandfather did. And we never could break him of that habit either. Even after he started teaching at Alamogordo High School, he kept a big old thick piece of foam under a table, and he would sleep in his classroom some nights and not come home. Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> I wonder. I wonder how that how that uh, worked for parent or for teacher student relations. As far as I mean, you really got to know your teacher in that. Oh week's boy! Period yeah, of that's what I always tell the kids when I'm talking to them in their classrooms. I'm like, "How would you guys like it if if Miss Lindley came to stay at your house or whatever?" And they go, "No." <laughs> so yeah, but the connection would maybe really help out. What it may really hurt. Might too. help or hurt. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's an interesting concept. There's probably some things that are better that. off not known about your students, and vice versa. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The skeletons in the closet sure. have to be locked up for a week. Well, and you know these these families. A lot of them are are, are big big families. Lots of kids. Lot very little room. Right. You know, lots of challenges. Wow. Yeah. I never even considered that. I just figured a one room schoolhouse. The teacher just had to know a lot. Actually, I figured that if the teacher knew enough to teach the older students, that the older students would be able to coach the younger That's students. That's exactly right. And the trickle-down mm-hmm. uh, education. A lot of times good. when I do this presentation about the way they used to do education, I just in fact, I just did it two days ago at the end of the Mountain Gods because um, I thought it would be an interesting topic after what we've just come through with COVID. Right. You know, I mean, when, when COVID happened, education experienced a change like had not happened since education started in this country where everything went virtual. And I don't know about you all, but my thought at the time when they started doing things virtually, I thought this is going to be really a great thing. I mean, this may change education overall. We might find that we can educate kids at home that live in rural communities and have a hard time getting to school, or we can educate them on snow days and places where it snows constantly. And, you know, I thought this might be end up being the new thing in education. And look what we found out. It didn't work. Right. It did not work well. And so, you know, I, I sometimes when I'm giving this presentation, I, I find that, you know, afterward people come up to me and they go, we really did it better back in the 1800s, didn't we? And we really did in a lot of ways. I mean, kids were much more prepared for life by eighth grade, which is as far as most of them went, oh, yeah. than I'd say a lot of our high school kids are now. <laughs> were they at school the entire day or was it less hours? Well, it was, uh, let me think about that for a second. It was 180 days compared to, yeah, they go to school more days now than they used to because of the harvest season. Right. So they had to go home and, and work. Um, the day probably was shorter because of the fact that the schoolhouse would, when, when they were building one in a rural community, it was usually built four to five miles from a student population. That was considered close enough to walk. So the kids would have to have, you know, they'd be up for several hours doing chores before they even started walking to school, and then they would have to get there. And it takes time to walk four or five miles oh, yeah. to get to school. So I don't know the actual answer to that, but my guess would be that it was probably a little bit less. Yeah. But you're right, though. Those teachers had to know everything about everything. And another thing, they had to be pretty good artists because they didn't have books. They didn't have textbooks, so if you're talking about, you know, something in another part of the country or a particular animal that these kids are never going to see, you know, you have to kind of be able to draw it on the chalkboard so the kids can get an idea what a giraffe looks like, you know? (laughs) Count me out on that one. Yeah. If it's not a stick figure that looks just like every other stick figure, I'm done. Well, you know, I'm the for, world's worst Pictionary. Player. I think back in those days, too, I bet you're better than you think. <laughs> I, um, I think that the, the, the goal of education back then, though, more importantly than anything, was to teach the kids how that they, you know, to be able to do the math and the reading and things that they would need to basically go back to their ranches or their farms and just do the, the work. 
you know? Right. So, but that's on the math side, one of the things that they didn't emphasize as much for the girls as the boys was arithmetic because it was thought that they didn't need it as much. And I always ask the girls, I go, is that true, girls? No! <laughs> what would you have needed math for? You know, and of course, fractions to be able to cook. Right. You know? And then if you go down to the mercantile and you're buying fabric to make the clothes for your family for the next year, you better make sure you got Papa's enough fabric for Papa's pants or he's right. going to be high water in it the whole year. <laughs> so, you know, you do have to know the math. But back in those days, they still thought girls didn't need math as much. Huh. That's just... Yeah, well, in reading, a lot of a lot of people didn't read back then too, right. and, and they didn't think that was important. But that's probably the most liberating thing that that happened. Most of them had the only book they would have ever seen was their family Bible, you right? Know? And 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 the library for the school might have been if you had an experienced teacher, a school marm, one of my age, <laughs> it would have been she might have acquired twenty or thirty books maybe if she was lucky. But they traveled, you know, they moved right. around and and they didn't have much belongings wise and stuff, and so they would you know find themselves. And you said a, some of these teachers were as young as sixteen. Oh yeah, you remember on Little House on the Prairie. How young Laura Ingalls was when she started teaching? I didn't, wa I didn't watch enough Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> well, you're not alone in that. That's actually in my slideshow when I'm doing my school marm thing. There's a picture of Melissa Gilbert playing Laura Ingalls Wilder and ringing the school bell. And I always ask the kids, you guys know who this is? No. Do you know what show this is from? No. I've never had a single student who knew Little House on the Prairie or who Melissa Gilbert was or who Laura Ingalls was. Well, I would have known those, but it's just one of those. Actually, I watched... A season of Little House on the Prairie, and I was into horses, uh, carriages, uh, and that kind of stuff. And it was actually very realistic as far as the harness setups and yeah. and the wagon setups that would have been used at that point in time. So from that aspect, it was it was really interesting. But I don't spend enough time in front of a TV, you know, to to really do that. So. Yeah. Well, in most cases, you're like I say, you're probably better off. But I think, I think it's really good, and this is why I think I have the most important job here at Lincoln and Fort Stanton, is that if I can get kids interested in history, I mean, one of my big priorities when I bring them in is to emphasize to them how hard life was, that they couldn't just walk into their own personal bathroom and oh. turn a faucet and have hot water in the morning, or they couldn't just walk into the kitchen and open a cabinet and have 20 different varieties of cereal. You know, if you were going to eat, you either had to prepare it or go hunt it. And right. if you wanted to take a bath, you had to go bring up a bunch of buckets of water and heat them each up individually. And I mean, on life your wood cook stove hard. that you had to cut the wood for. Yes, yes, you know, and of course, kids today they think they're so oppressed. Oh, life is so hard for me. You know, so I really try to emphasize for them, you know, how good they have it, so that they can have a better appreciation for it. It's going to be really sad like if we like end that. up in another Great Depression situation where they have to. Go back to these uh, skills, and, and well, and another that's thing why that the museums are so important. I think mm -hmm. is it, it brings this reality kind of to us. We can see what they were doing, right? And I think that there's a lot of uh, fantasy about how they lived back in the day. But like you said, when you had a, a one room house, everybody had to take care of their chores, or else nothing was going to function. Absolutely. Right? It, it wasn't an easy life. No, it wasn't an easy life. And, and I think back in those days, too, that there was more effort in teaching resilience. Oh, definitely. How to bounce back from hardship, how to work through it, how to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, you know. 
now it's so soft. It's so Everything coddling. It's so soft. helicopter parent. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's fine as long as times are good. Yes. But if things go downhill, we're going we're gonna to find that we, we didn't prepare our kids very well, I don't think. I, I, I definitely think that you're right on with that. And like I said, museums are important just to learn how people lived back then. And mm-hmm. at that point in time, I think life was survival. I mean, everything you did had a purpose. Right. We didn't have time to sit down and watch TV. We didn't have time to go to a movie. We didn't have time because our washing machine was a washboard right. at the river. Yeah. And you were physically doing that. Or even with the ringer washer in the 30s, mm-hmm. you know, you were still standing over your laundry, feeding it through the ringer. You didn't go push a button and come back an hour later. So you had no free time. Absolutely. Everything you did was was survival. Part of one of the uh, lessons that we teach at Fort Stanton is about the laundresses and okay. how important laundresses were. Because you've got all these men with their stinky wool uniforms that they've been marching for eight hours outside in the New Mexico sun. You know, they had to have people to do that, that wash work. And it was miserable. Again, going down to the river and collecting the water and making the lye soap and the washboard and hang it up. And the wind would take your clothes and blow them across the desert in the dirt. And it was just, it, it, that's a story in itself. Yes. But yeah, it's one of those just day-to-day kind of things. Being in a, in a nice pair of clean clothes is so basic to us now. But back in the day, that was that was probably all the women did was laundry and cooking and sewing and laundry and cooking and sewing and laundry and cooking and sewing all day, every well, day. Well, you didn't go down to the store and buy a loaf of bread. You no. didn't go down and buy a can of soup. Right. You made everything from scratch. It, you'd have a, I'm sure that they had a day set aside just for bread making. Oh, sure. And, and three it, or four days set aside just to get to the store. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. if well, you, you lived in some of the other community, yeah. yeah, you had to travel a long way just to get into the store. And you didn't go every other day. No. Like we do now. You went And you didn't have refrigeration to keep the meat. So that was all, I mean, you had to prep that. and, yep. and food preservation. Yes, everything. Yeah. It was, it was a full-time job just to stay alive. It probably would be smart if we would bring some of that stuff back into the schools just to have kids prepared in case things go off the rails. Right. Because, you know, if infrastructure goes down, we are going to be lost. And I'm not excluding myself. I know a little bit more just from having worked here, but, yeah, I'll be crying. <laughs> you know, I think we all will. You know, this easy life, having hot water at the turn of a spigot yeah. is really a nice thing. I, I thank God every day when I turn on my hot water faucet. I say thank you. Thank you, know, you for hot water. <laughs> and, having, and having a privy in the house instead of having to yeah. do the 100-yard dash. Have you had the uh, outhouse experience? Oh, I have. Have you? Yeah. At 20 fun, below, huh? going out and uh, I did. My son my son did not have running water till he was 10 years oh, old. Oh, wow. So, yep. yes, we, we were building our house as we had time, as we had money. I mm-hmm. refused to give any money to the, to the mortgage company. And so... We that that was our life. For, you do what for, you have to do, and you do. And it took the wife a lot longer to cook our meals because we had to start the wood cook stove. Sure. Uh, living in Wyoming, it was cold, and I can tell you, I I've sat on a on a outhouse seat at twenty below. Yeah, I'm I've always got, afraid I've, of I've spiders. Sat on a, well, I sat on a scorpion one time, oh, and that wasn't that wasn't a good experience either. I, it was I always summer. thought there was going to be tarantula below, in there. But I was still hopping back to the house, going, "Ooh, that hurts." <laughs> I bet outhouses were nice places for bats, too. Uh, I would have had bats diving at me in the outhouse. <laughs> we can't forget about our bat story, you know. Oh, yes. 
Although there's so many stories to tell. <laughs> okay, so we've pretty much covered the courthouse here, along with a whole lot of other rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's see if it's windy outside still. If not, maybe we can take a walk on up the road and, and still use our microphones. Yeah. Otherwise, I just had another idea for the. I think the Torreon would be a neat place for us to go. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, I want to talk. And about we can that. get inside. And you were talking, I guess, let's just go ahead and talk about the uh, Tunnel store. The Tunsil store? Tunsil, there we go. <laughs> uh, Target. Target, yes. Okay, now now that store is still on the main street mm -hmm. and still looks to be in pretty good condition, but you said that it's closed to the public right now, and you were telling us a story about that. Yeah. Let's, let's go with that. Well, we... We we had a little bit of a I mean we occasionally these old buildings attract little little flying critters little bats right and here in our area the Mexican free tail is kind of the predominant bat which is what I remember from when I was a kid flying around and they tend to stay up in the in the up ozone you know kind of that's what you see I think at Carlsbad Caverns right. when the hundreds of them okay. come out it's the Mexican free tails mostly but this summer we had a lot of rain and. Uh, Suddenly we found ourselves, well, I actually got a text message from my manager at about 10 o'clock at night, and he never used to text me, and this, this message said, um, there is literally a tornado of bats in the Tunstall store. Uh-oh. <laughs> and I'm looking at my phone going, and he sends me a video, and he was that's exactly what it was. It was just hundreds of bats swirling inside the museum. So um, the funny part of the story was that he and our previous manager apparently went online and, and saw something that said the way you get rid of bats is to play heavy metal music. Oh. So, so they went down to the brewery and got speakers and then took them back to the Tunstall store. In this video, you hear Metallica or something blaring on the speakers, and these bats are just swirling around. And I'll tell you what... <laughs> Heavy metal music has no effect on bats. I probably just irritated them more than anything. They were swirling around. None of them left the building. So it took a couple of nights, and it turns out the way you get rid of them is you just open the doors and windows, and they fly out when they're ready. So we eventually got them out of the Tunstall store, but then we had to bring in a bat expert to kind of look at the situation and figure out what we needed to do to plug the holes where the bats had come in. And the reason the bats came in was because the Tunstall store had been sinking in the back, it was um, kind of collapsing, okay. and we had been waiting to get money from the state for like 20 years and finally got it, and they came in and they jacked the building up, repaired the foundation, fixed all of this, but apparently something got opened up, and the bats all said, hey, guys, come on in. It's great in here. So that's why we think they were so many of them inside. But anyway, um, the bat expert told us that in addition to the Mexican freetail bats, we now had pallid bats. And um, the, so the story I was telling you right. is that I, have a, I live here amongst the museums, and I have a little senior dog that needs to go out in the middle of the night sometimes, and I kept seeing these dark, shadowy pterodactyls dive bomb in my head in the darkness and just freaking me out beyond words because I was so That's afraid. kind of ugly little creatures. They're anyway. ugly little creatures anyway, but I have a lot of hair. Even at night, <laughs> I have a lot of hair, and I was just so afraid one of these things was going to get tangled in my hair. So... Um, Come to find out from the bat guy that these pallid bats are like here this year and, and they have a 15 to 16 inch wingspan. So I wasn't just imagining them being huge. They were huge. And uh, they that would be about the size of a crow or a raven. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They looked bigger in the darkness than oh, that raven. 
but pterodactyls. <laughs> yes, pterodactyls, and and they hunt on the ground. So they hunt lizards and scorpions and things that crawl around, and they hunt by sound. And so my little doggy and I were crunching on the gravel and making sounds, and they thought we were dinner. So that's why they were buzzing the tower coming in. And so I would go out in the middle of the night with an umbrella over my head, um, just to keep them out of my hair. But I'm hoping they don't come back this year. <laughs> they're they're too big, big bats. Well, I guess as long as we're here, we're, we're sheltered from, from the wind. Uh, what other uh, storefronts or buildings are open on the main street that, that people can wander through? Like uh, modern kind of gift shop kind of things like that? or no, just talking just historic. historic? There's, there's more history here than Billy the Kid. Yeah, I think I forgot to mention when I was talking about how everybody used to barter with each other and how sometimes people think the Lincoln County War was this fight between the Super Walmart and Target. I'm, I intended to say that actually at that time there were like 21 stores in Lincoln. It wasn't really? like it was just those two. So um, one of our museums down at the far east end of town is called the Montano Store. And the Montanos were early citizens, very respected here in the community and successful. And they um, ended up, like most of the local Hispanics did during the Lincoln County War, siding with the Tunstall McSween faction and the, okay. the regulators in Billy. They were on that team. So now, they, how come most of the merchant, uh, merchants were on that side versus... Because um, this community had been settled in the 1850s by native New Mexican Hispanic people who had been in this territory for a long time, but more up by Socorro, Manzano, Upper okay. Rio Grande, and they had just kind of migrated down here. They saw opportunity and came to this area and, and started a new community. So they had settled here in the 1850s, and it wasn't until, like I say, the 18, well, Fort Stanton was built in 1855, primarily to help subdue the Native Americans and protect the settlers from right. Native American attacks where they were basically coming in and stealing their livestock more than anything. But that was the purpose of Fort Stanton. So now you've got this Hispanic Native American and now you've got the white folks showing up. Okay. And we've got this kind of clash of cultures going on, right? So um, by the 1870s when this store was built, then they started to... Um, Murphy's tactic that he was using was because there wasn't real currency, they would just let people come in here and buy stuff on credit. Okay. So the sales were just what was written on paper. There was nothing real behind it, which is part of, probably part of the reason the store went out of business before too long. But basically what Murphy would do was, he, in Dolan, they would send out Sheriff Brady to collect from these Hispanic people, these poor farmers, and say, hey, time to pay up, you know, show up at their door, and the people would be like, we're not ready. We don't have the money. And he'd go, that's all right. We'll just take your land. So basically what Murphy had been doing was scooping up all the land in Lincoln from these Hispanic people that, you know, were kind of squatters in a way. I mean, there was no right. there was no documented proof that they owned the property they were living and working. And Murphy just took it from them. And wow. people were getting kicked out. So this settlement, the settlement in the next valley over where it was, you know, Hispanic families that had been here for a long time, when they saw Tunstall and McSween show up, they thought, oh, they're going to break this monopoly. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to end Murphy and we won't be losing our land anymore. So the Hispanic communities typically sided with Tunstall and McSween, okay. hoping that they were going to save them from this corruption of Murphy and Dolan. Wow. But of course, Tunstall got killed and so did McSween. And so that was the end of that. But huh. over, I mean, that's why Billy, you know, if, again, if you read back on his testimonials about how people felt about him, the teachers, the students that he knew, even the regulators who fought with him 
they'll say he was loyal to a fault. He was sharp. You know, he was a good shooter. He was always the best guy to have behind you in a fight. You know, he was funny. He was a great dancer. He was bilingual. He spoke Spanish and, and you know, all the girls in these communities loved him. He had girlfriends everywhere. He had a girlfriend over on the ranch where I used to live. The house is still there. You know, he, he was, despite the picture, Right. You know, where even Paulina Maxwell, who was allegedly one of his girlfriends, said that really wasn't one of his greatest moments. Wouldn't you hate that? <laughs> to have a bad hair that's day. The only picture and then of that's it. like the only well, so that's what they say. You know about the croquet picture, right? Supposedly there's another one. I've heard that there's, there's probably a lot, actually. Really? Yeah, and there's quite a few that look really suspicious. But this picture, the famous authenticated picture of Billy the Kid, was a tintype that we had in our visitor center for years. Donated by family, you know, in right. the area, you know, and it was just there on display. And then someone must have figured out that it might be worth something. And it went up for auction, and it's now owned by Bill Koch. Okay. So that's the only one that's considered authenticated. And I'm told that the reason is because anyone who was alive that actually knew Billy that could say, yes, that's Billy the Kid, of course, is gone by now. Right. And there's a little bit of a financial benefit to having the only authenticated picture of Billy the Kid. But... Imagine that. That croquet picture, if you've ever seen the documentary, is, is a subject for a lot of debate around here because it just sounds ridiculous that there would be a picture of outlaws playing croquet, right? Right. But croquet had just come to the United States from England. England. Yeah. And John Tunstall is here and, you know, they... Could have been but some cowboys, way to kill time. cowboys would have wanted to have recreation too. Well, yeah, Croquet's it's like, it's like as good as cowboys playing polo. Who would have thought of that? But cowboy right. polo was huge around this area. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we get we get questions about the croquet picture a lot, and it depends on who you're talking to, whether they believe or not. But um, I have spoken to a young man who came through about a year and a half ago who lived on the Tunstall Ranch as a kid. His great uncle owned it. And he, he said he's seen that picture and he thinks it's legit. He remembers all the spots that are in the picture very clearly, the building, the tree that was falling down, the hill line, everything matches up with his memory of that place. Wow. So there's a little more, little more corroboration. I guess they finally did decide that the picture was authentic and they declared it authentic. But as far as I know, it's never sold. It's valued at $5 million. That really? one sold for $2 million, the one of Billy. Wow. So... Okay, Maybe so today. so so we just went down another rabbit yes, hole. Yes, we did. But, I'm sorry, but no, I interrupted <laughs> and I asked the question. But you were talking about the 21 all the stores, stores and, yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So during the five day battle that I mentioned to you, um, when when the troops came down from Fort Stanton and everybody was kind of locked down all over town, well, one of the major places where the Tunstall McSween regulators were hanging out was inside the Montano store down there at the end of okay. town, and when Colonel Dudley and his troops came down from Fort Stanton. They came down with a mountain howitzer and a Gatling gun, and they set up camp right across the street from the Montagna store, and they pointed that Gatling gun and mountain howitzer at the Montagna store, and those guys boogied back over to San Patricio. They, wow. they took off. So that's kind of what fell apart. I mean, in the beginning of the five-day battle, McSween had the advantage. He had more people throughout the town in right. better positions than the Murphy Dolan crowd had. But um, various just little things happened, primarily the fact that the soldiers sided with Team Murphy. And as a result of that, a lot of the, the fighters boogied out. And before long, it was just McSween and Billy and a few of the regulators in McSween house. And then the... Some of the people on the other side set the house on fire and burned them out. 
So this seems to be a common uh, way to get rid of people. Yeah, back in it's those effective. Times. Yeah. yeah. Although it didn't, it, it, the fire didn't start the first time. It took a while for it to catch. <laughs> they right. finally got it going, though. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. And so after the Lincoln County Wars, what kept Lincoln going? There's got to be more history here than just, really uh, than did, just that, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, really. I mean, I, I've read 600 to 700 people lived here during Lincoln County wartime. Okay. And of course now today we say we maybe have about 50 to 75 okay. who live in the area. So I, you know, just like a lot of small towns that were on the up and up in the beginning and they looked like they were going to be the place to be because they were the county seat. Right. When the railroad passed them by, they died. Okay. And so I think that's probably a big part of what happened with Lincoln too was just, you know, but that brings up another little interesting point, And this is what I emphasize to the school kids, because you wonder why is this in their school books? Why does anybody even talk about the Lincoln County War? Why does this even matter? It's just another one of a whole bunch of wars that burst out after the Civil War. Right. When people started to settle the West and there were wars everywhere. The reason this one matters for us is because they're trying to settle this area. They're trying to settle the state. We wanted to achieve statehood. Okay. We're still a territory. And we couldn't accomplish that because all the newspapers back east are writing stories about this crazy Billy the Kid and all the people out there that are shooting each other right and left in Lincoln, New Mexico. You couldn't get anybody to settle here because it just looked like it was too corrupt, too outlawed, okay. too much violence. And so basically that's why the group in Santa Fe, the, the politicians and everybody that were kind of pulling the strings on a lot of this, which they referred to as the Santa Fe Ring, basically decide to nail Billy. They made him the scapegoat for all of this bad publicity and everything that was keeping us from achieving statehood. They had to get him out of the way. Okay. And once they got rid of Billy, Lincoln County War ends, things start to settle down. They finally can make this look like it's a civilized place where people can come and feel safe. And it still took us 62 years, I think almost almost the longest to go from territory to statehood. Wow. <laughs> I think there's only one other state that beat us, and it was only by like a few hours. That was a little <laughs> bit longer. But uh, yeah, that's it took forever for us to achieve statehood because we just couldn't get our act together out here. Well, I think there's still a lot of people that come out this direction. Uh, I know in Wyoming and stuff, <clears throat> that still think we all carry six guns. We all ride horses. We all, you know, I mean, it, we're, we're still backwards cowboy hick states. Yeah. Which is kind there's of... There's an a, argument for that. <laughs> well, and, 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 and I think that, that there's a lot of truth to it in some ways, too. But, yeah. But not to the expectations that we're still having Indian wars and yeah. and that kind of stuff, you know. We're, we're pretty much like everybody else, but... Uh, we like our space. Yeah, and we have a lot of it. And that's, you know, that's another hard concept for a lot of people is just like, I mean, it's like when I go back east and I go from one state to the other and don't even realize I've crossed a line. Right. Or you don't even realize that you're in another state or you can go across a state in an hour. <laughs> you know, right. Those are things that are foreign concepts to me. And uh, out here, there was just, in fact, the, the map behind you is something I show to the school kids here too. This is from 1890. So this is quite a ways after the Lincoln County War, but you can see here how big Lincoln County still was. It's almost oh, yeah. the entire bottom quadrant of the state. And so you've got one sheriff that's supposed to keep tabs on everything that's going on in this whole section of the state. Right. You know, that's part of the reason things were so out of control because you just, you didn't have enough law. Now, originally, this whole section here was Socorro County. 
We were originally Socorro County. And then in 1869, they decided to split it in half, and that's when Lincoln County was formed. And uh, and then over time, I think I read once that it went from it, Lincoln County, it was the biggest county in the United States, bigger than Ireland, and um, it ended up becoming eight different counties. <laughs> okay. So it's been broken down many, many times since. So Wow. Yeah, that's part of the reason that it was hard to handle. It was just too big, too much space. And people from back east didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> well, I think we'll go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll take the tour of the other buildings, but we'll go ahead and shut the podcast down now. Okay. And I so appreciate your time yeah. taking it with us. This has been so much fun. Uh, I, I love it. I really do. This is, <laughs> there's just so much history and so much, uh, so much to know. And as I finish out my podcasts, I always say, the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. And if you come to Lincoln, I'm sure you can spend a full day exploring and still not even see it all. The history is still alive in this town. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Thank you.